Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, thank you for your goodness and your grace, for your love for each of us, for your guidance and your protection. God, as I attempt to explain these texts, I pray that you would pick up my failing words and fill them with your meaning. Fill fill them with substance that is good and true and beautiful, that transforms the ways that we understand ourselves and others towards love and liberation. Amen. I tried to become a monk when I was in college. There was a Trappist Abbey near my school, and I'd often visit, and I'd walk the grounds, study in the library, and pray with the monks. They bound books and made chocolate truffles and prayed seven times a day. They tended the garden and kept the grounds and held mass every day. Quiet, robed monks could be seen wandering through the mist of the surrounding forest. I wanted that peace. I wanted that sense of purpose and belonging. I wanted that proximity to God. But I didn't want to be Catholic. So (laughs) I reached out to an Episcopal monastery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I knew that joining a brother or sisterhood is a long process of inquiry, seeking, discernment. But their first question stopped me in my tracks. The abbot asked me, have you exhausted every possibility for spiritual practice where you are now? Have you given yourself over so completely to the work of prayer that you have no other option but to join us? I told him I didn't think I had, and he said, be a monk out there before you try to become one in here. This was so profoundly illuminating to me as a young Christian who wanted to take seriously the spiritual power of this tradition, to tap into the beautifully haunting mystery of our mystical traditions. I'd read the desert fathers and mothers, and I wanted that kind of wisdom and perspective, that grounded peace and control over my own spirit. And in some sense, I wanted an escape from this world that was so harrowing and unholy. But this was a misunderstanding of what the mystical life meant, a misapprehension of how the Spirit of God becomes available to us, which I began to understand doesn't come through an escape from the world, but by embracing the world, by making the world my monastery and suffusing all of life with spirit and meaning through a mystical mode of being.
I want to share this morning an explanation and an appeal, inviting you to become a monk out there. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he's not writing to monks. He's writing to everyday people who have lives and jobs and families and hobbies and all sorts of other claims on their attention and time. But listen to what he says to these regular folks. Hear the depth in his words. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and do not conform to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are the paradoxical patterns of the mystical life. The first part of this passage asks us to sacrifice our bodies, not so that we die in some final way, but so that we might truly live. This living sacrifice is transitive and incomplete. It's living. It's not finished, it's constant and alive as a sacrifice that occurs in every moment of being without end. And this echoes the words of Thessalonians 5.17, which commands us to pray without ceasing. How can we be in prayer all of the time except through an alteration to our very being? Even the most dedicated monk can be awake 24-7, constantly attentive to the practice of prayer, though some have tried. One common practice is the incessant repetition of a single, short, prayerful phrase. God is great, and the limits of his mercy have not been set. God is great, and the limits of his mercy have not been set. God is great, and the limits of his mercy have not been set. And on and on and on until it runs automatically through the mind, structuring even the monk's dreams so that they are always praying in obedience to this directive. But the answer for us, I think, to the problem of how to be a living sacrifice that prays without ceasing is in the alteration of our being. And this is implied by the second part of our reading the second part of the passage demands that we be transformed instead of conformed. Not because we reject the world or attempt to escape from it, but so that we might change it. We might exert influence over it. We might antagonize its systems of meaning, not with the logics of abusive power, but with the mystical meaning of the love of God the depths of which have not even been approached by human understanding. We're asked to sink into this ministry, this mystery, to rise into it so that it might shape us into the image of Christ. We approach this mystical union with Christ through the Spirit, caught up into the divine life itself, into the dynamic energy of the Trinity. Theologians have called this theosis, but Christians haven't needed jargon to experience that same reality. There's a mystical and paradoxical disjuncture with the world that brings us back to the world. We are led away to death, to alienation from this world, only to rise again, more at home in it than ever before, because we now know what needs to be done. And it's this transformation of being, this constant communion with the Spirit of God that allows us to pray without ceasing. 
It's not a matter of repeating prayerful phrases into oblivion, but of grounding the deepest parts of ourselves in this mystical union with Christ through the Spirit. In this way, we become living sacrifices. In this way, we pray without ceasing. This is what Paul asks of us, not to remove ourselves to a monastic life of seclusion and separation and hermitage, but to engage this mystical call where we are, in the middle of unceasing demands on our time and practical limitations. It's within that context that all of this is possible. That's what Paul is telling these normal folks that he's writing to. And when we begin to grasp that truth, we start to realize that the world is a monastery. There's nowhere that holds mystical potential in a way that your apartment does not, or your seat on the train does not, or your pew at church does not. The spirit isn't a fugitive relegated to sanitized territories or bunkers of boredom. The spirit is pervasive and powerful, approachable at the moment of intention, demanding no other prerequisite. The spirit is not circumscribed by some humanly imposed boundary on her work. She is not within the world. The world is within her. She gave birth to the world and holds it in her care. She exists in and through and beyond it, and yet we live as if she's bound by these walls. We live as if the limits of our mystical call are set by the dimensions of this sacred space, as if the world itself were not sacred, the world which is loved into being and sustained by the Spirit of God. It's this self-limitation that I want to deconstruct this morning. This sense that the mystical possibilities of this tradition are only for some special group of chosen people who exist in separate spheres so far removed from the practicalities of our daily lives. But know the full weight and power of the Spirit of God is available to you who choose to dispose your being to this living sacrifice, who are transformed by the renewing of your mind and who pray without ceasing. I was talking with Nate about this on Wednesday after breakfast, about how folks seem to think that church is a place that you come to for some level of spiritual practice, maybe bordering on the mystical at times, but then we leave with nothing more than a moral framework. It kind of guides us through our lives, but not even that completely. And that's the extent of our Christianity a set of fairly rudimentary beliefs or moral convictions, but a weak spirituality, thinking that the mystical stuff is for ministers and monks. And Nate said that that was kind of similar to how folks think about being a revolutionary, that a revolutionary role is somehow a unique or sacred call placed upon one's life by God or history or the people a call unavailable to most normal folks, when the reality is being a mystic or being a revolutionary is a matter of your practices. These are roles that have no meaning outside of your practices, and those practices are available to all of us. We can all pray. 
We can all meditate. We can all contemplate the mysteries of God's love. It's simple. But when I say that so simply and concretely, it feels banal. It feels inconsequential. As if these are activities you could pick up, like yoga or drawing or any other therapeutic and centering practice. But the point that I'm trying to drive home is that these particular practices are ascetic rejections of worldly patterns of thought and worldly modes of being that fundamentally question the stability of the world's reality and the truth of its claims about the meaning of human life and labor. The mystical life is not primarily about devotion to the apprehension of some meaning that already exists somewhere out there. But the creation of meaning in a world that is dead to beauty and justice. The creation of meaning that can liberate us against the fetid formalizations of a world organized by abusive power. The mystical life is both a descent into insanity, into a rationality that the world can't recognize, and the substance of the world's end. It's through this union with the Christ who ends and remakes the world that we begin to understand what liberation looks like. This is how we escape the prison of a spiritless world and find the numinous power of God that suggests to us in the quiet spaces the possibility of revolution. One of my favorite films is called The Illusionist. It's French, animated, and has almost no dialogue. And it follows this aging illusionist through the cultural and technological changes of the 50s. And what used to intrigue and excite people about his act fades in the face of television and rock bands and other forms of entertainment that don't require a tacit belief in that, at least the possibility of magic. In one scene, he performs his illusions to a crowd of credulous and excited country folk under these warm, glowing, golden lanterns of a pub. And then as he exits, they replace the lamps with the soulless life of an electric light bulb that washes the scene in this deadening white light. And the mystique, the magic, the mysticism is gone. He sort of adopts this young girl that he raises into adulthood, and as the world becomes more and more dismissive of and in, uninterested in the possibility of magic, he narrows and winnows into nothing. He leaves her, and he leaves a note that says, magicians do not exist having lost hope in a world that can believe in magic. I was in this searching phase when I watched the film, looking for the magic in the world, seeking the mystical. And I sobbed at the end of this movie, wiping snot from my face with my sleeves. I ran out into the woods, watching the moon frame the pines, on the hills, shrouded in mist, wondering if there was any magic left in the world at all. But the illusionist's paradox 
is the mystic's paradox. I can't explain to you what it is that the magician and the mystic know about the world. I'm not going to draw lines around what is real and what is imagined. But I know that they both infuse the world with a depth of significance and meaning that is real when we grasp it, when we give in to the spirit of the encounter. I know that the mystical life unites us with something that expands our sense of the possible so far beyond what this anti-black, anti-woman, anti-worker world can imagine. I know that the mystical life is necessary if we are to tap into the practices that will sustain us through the tortures of decaying empires and weakening white supremacy and that can give us the apocalyptic revelations of endings and new beginnings. And this is part of what we offer the world as the church. This is what salvation means. We repent of the world in sackcloth and ashes, like monks, ascetic to its temptations, committed to the dissolution and the advent of a world bound in matrimony to the mystical terrain of heaven. These labors are not resigned to churches or monasteries or abbeys or cloisters. They are you in the pew. They are you in your apartment, you on the train, you being the mystic, suffusing the world with magic and meaning, antagonizing the deadness of a spiritless world with the love of God that draws all things into relationship towards liberation, towards wholeness. The world is a monastery, and you are already a monk. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on First Church Brooklyn. Org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.